Let's pray together. Father, we're here to celebrate the resurrection of your son, our hope. I pray that as we look at this passage that that is vividly seen by our hearts, I, I would imagine everyone in this room is very familiar with the story of the resurrection, but we know there is sometimes an infinite difference, sometimes an eternal difference between understanding and giving our life to, and I pray for the second today. I pray that as we see your risen son and the reward of the resurrection that we will see in this passage that it is life-changing that nobody leaves here the same. If we're already Christians, that we see you more vividly, Lord Jesus, that we see your resurrected beauty in a way that makes us want to never look away, and if we have never trusted in you, I pray that we would see the sham of a life we have been living and the glorious life that is offered in you. I pray that, Lord Father, in your Son Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Wade just read, it's Easter, and so we're going to take a break from Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 20, uh, verse 1 through 18. And as you turn, I'll tell you a quick story. One of the benefits of COVID for me, uh, the first week of the shutdown, my wife Claudia and I watched a documentary about a sport I knew almost nothing of called Formula One. Okay, and there's some, there's some secret Formula One fans in here who are scared of American persecution. Gaba, uh, and you know, you've, I, I found you out now because I am one of you. Uh, it's, it's the highest uh, echelon, if you will, of, of motor racing, so NASCAR, Formula One, they travel all over the world, and so we quickly became obsessed, my wife and I, and as we became obsessed, I began telling other people, evangelizing Formula One racing, evangelizing this documentary, uh, although I don't condone it because there's cuss words. You know, I'm always nervous anytime I talk about anything, people are going to be like, Pastor Jared said he watched this, and you're going to see a bunch of F words and be like, oh. So, I mean, I, I plugged my ears when I was listening. So just you do that. You do that too. Uh, what was I saying? Anyway, I love Formula One now, and I was finding others, Gaba, who love Formula One as well. And there was this growing kind of mini cult within our church. And Tim and Kelsey, the Hollises, began to love the sport. And so when, again, they travel all over the world, they race all over the world, and when they come to the States, they actually race in Austin. And so last year, uh, the Hollises and Claudia and I went to the race in Austin. They practice on Friday, they qualify on Saturday, and then the race is Sunday. So we're there all day, uh, every day, dying from the heat because it was in August. And so all, all, the whole time we're there, the whole weekend, we're just scouting where are we going to sit If you are really loaded, you sit in the stands. If you're not really loaded, you sit on the grass, okay? And this track is about three miles, so the whole time we're scouting. You can't see the whole race. you got to pick what portion of the track do you want to watch. And so we found our spot. We're scouting all Friday, scouting all Saturday. We finally find our spot, and so here's our plan. On Sunday, we're going to get there super early. This, by the way, was the biggest sporting event in the U.S., this sport that you've never heard of. Uh, 450,000 people were there for, uh, over the weekend for this race. And so we've got some competition for our little spot on the grass. And so we found our spot on Saturday, and we're like, okay, here's what we're going to do. On Sunday, we'll get there early before the gates open, and we will sprint. Tim and I will sprint to our spot. We'll carry the chairs. We'll give the backpack with our stuff to our wives because, you know, we're chivalrous. They'll carry the heavy stuff. We'll just carry the bags and run to this spot. The problem 
it is around a mile and a half away from where the gates open. And I haven't sprinted a mile and a half, sprinted a mile and a half in a while, up at this point. Uh, so we, we get there. The line is long. Apparently, other people wanted to get there before the gates open. They're scanning us. And the second we get through the little, you know, wand to make sure we're not dangerous, Tim and I take off. Here's the other problem. It's a mile and a half away. It's also very much uphill. So Tim and I start running, and we're just side by side, high-fiving, you know, bobbing and weaving around all the losers who are walking to their spots, uh, you know, keeping our, our bags. We're already beginning to cramp. It's been about 100 yards, and so we're going, and it's about three-quarters of a mile, and there's this, there is this massive hill, and we get to the top. We're about halfway there, seriously cramping, and as we get to the top of the hill, we hit the concession area, and so at 7 a.m., having just run three-quarters of a mile, a wall of chili and nachos and funnel cake smell just hits us. And I hear my running mate go, nope. And then all of a sudden I was alone sprinting. My, Tim had fallen away and I was alone. I'm, I'm, go, I'm playing the Braveheart song in my head to keep going. I'm playing Rocky, anything. You know, I'm running past people and they're like, should I be running too? And I'm stiff arming them, all these things. I finally get to our seats. Tim caught up, you know, a while later. Uh, and so finally, we're there, we've got our seats, I had shoved everybody out of the way, and so we were set. Why do I tell that story? What in the world does that have to do with John 20? Well, in this passage, we're going to also see two men running, and one outruns the other, much like our situation. But I don't just tell that because there's two men running. I'm not that bad of a preacher. Why? Why were Tim and I running? To get to the seats, yes, but why do we want to get to the seats? There's something on the other side of the seats, the race. We're there to see the race. So the seats are a means to an end, and we will see Peter and John, we'll see Mary as well. They're not just running to see an empty tomb. There's something on the other side of that empty tomb that they really, really, really want to see, a reward of the resurrection. So we're going to look at three main things as we walk through this text today. Number one, the resurrection, the empty tomb. Number two, the person of the resurrection. And number three, the reward of the resurrection. The resurrection, the person of the resurrection, who it is that gets out of the empty tomb, and the reward of the resurrection. So let's read verse 1 through 10. Let's look at this first section, the resurrection. Now... On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooped to look in. He saw linen cloths lying there, and he did not go, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, whom had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as of yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples 
went back to their homes. Let's look at this a bit closer. First thing we see, Mary Magdalene is going to the tomb, going early. It's still dark. If you know the other gospel accounts, you know it, A, wasn't just Mary. So John is focusing on Mary because she's going to be the main player in the story later, but we know there's other women there. In fact, you even see in verse 2, we, notice that, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So other women are there. This isn't an inconsistency with the other gospel accounts. John is just focusing in on Mary Magdalene. So she sees the, the, the stone rolled away. She doesn't peer in yet. She just sees the stone rolled away and she sprints. She runs to tell Peter and John, the one whom Jesus loved is John. She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice something. Mary has already concluded what has happened. Grave robbers. They've t- someone's taken the Lord. She's already concluded, and we're going to see it's going to take a lot of work to get this false conclusion out of her mind. But for now, the story shifts to Peter and John. They take off, verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So they take off. John, we know, is the other disciple. He's actually the one writing this. So it seems kind of like a humble brag. It's just, he outran him. You know, some chili, smelt some. Uh, we'll, we'll look at why he says this uh, in, in a little bit, but look at verse 5. So they run, they get to the tomb, and stooping to look in, he, John, saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. So Simon Peter came in, came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. So John gets there first, doesn't go in, just kind of peeks around the tomb and looks in. And Peter, very true to Peter-like form. If you know anything, there's no, basically no good story of Peter in the Gospels. Even when he gets something right, you know, who do, who do man say to thy, that I am? And they give all the wrong answers. And then Jesus says, but who do you? And Jesus, or Peter says, you're the Christ. Good job, Peter. And then what happens next? He has the wrong idea of what that means. And Jesus calls him Satan. You know, so not great. I mean, his highest moment quickly became his lowest moment. So very true to form. Peter always putting his foot in his mouth, just barreling into situation, just sprints right into the tomb and he sees the folded cloth. So we know as the readers, it's not grave robbers. Grave robbers would never take the time to slowly unwrap the the body that they're robbing. They would have just taken it. They certainly wouldn't have folded the cloth there. So we know Mary's wrong. Her conclusion is wrong. Something else is going on here. Verse 8 Then the other disciple, John, whom reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. So John comes in, he looks at what Peter's looking at, looks at the cloth lying there, and he believes, but he still doesn't understand the scriptures. This verse has tripped a lot of people up, very confusing to a lot. Some people think this is a statement saying he doesn't believe and it's just hard to translate, so they just, translators do their best. But most commentators, in fact, D.A. Carson, who kind of wrote the commentary on the Gospel of John, says basically what's happening here, all throughout the Gospels, you see the disciples not understanding the scriptures or understanding Jesus' words. They're constantly confused, both by the scriptures, they don't understand the scriptures, and then they don't understand. Jesus' words, there's like scenes where Samaritans reject Jesus and John and Andrew are like, okay, should we call down fire to destroy them? And Jesus is like, what? No, 
what a horrible idea. Uh, and, you know, they're in the boat, and Jesus says, I have bread that you don't know of. And they're like, who gave him bread? And he's like, I'm talking, I'm not talking about actual bread, right? They're constantly misunderstanding Jesus. Here, what John is showing is for the first time, though they still don't understand the scriptures, they're understanding a bit of Jesus' words. Remember, Jesus has predicted, I'm going to die and I'm going to be, be raised again. So what John is essentially showing here is the resurrection is beginning to crack open the door to understanding. They don't fully get there yet, but now they're beginning to kind of understand his word. They don't understand the scriptures yet. But remember, the upper room, John 14 through 17, Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, don't worry, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised, ascend to the Father. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I will send the Spirit. And what will the Spirit do when the Spirit of God comes? He will bring to mind everything I'm saying. He will give you understanding in all things. The second step of understanding, understanding the scriptures, we're going to see happens when the Spirit comes. In Acts, the, the disciple sermons are saturated with scripture pointing to Jesus being Lord. We see the understanding does fully come when the Spirit falls, but essentially what John is showing here is the resurrection is kind of step one. The door is beginning to be cracked open. He saw and believed though he did not yet understand the scriptures. Now, these first 10 verses are kind of, in a way, setting up the story for what's going to come next, what we're going to look at in a second with Mary. But there are a few things I want you to see here. First of all, one of the most common accusations, especially in the, in the early days of Christianity, was the disciples are the ones that actually stole the body, so they opened the tomb, they stole the body, they knew that Jesus had predicted that he would be raised, and so they steal the body and pretend, make up a story that he was raised to kind of just spread their lies all over the kingdom. We even see that in Matthew 28, the chief priests pay off the guards, the guards who were guarding the tomb that are knocked out, right, when the resurrection happens, the chief priests pay off the guards to say, specifically, say the disciples stole the body, and that all they're saying about this resurrected Lord is just a made-up story. Now, if that is what John is doing, he is doing an absolutely terrible job. If John knows we really stole the body, let's make up a plausible story that will make people believe that he really was raised from the dead. He is doing quite possibly the worst job he could be doing at proving that case. First of all, who's the first witness to the resurrection? A woman who in his day, would have been, her witness would have been thrown out almost instantly. But what woman? We'll look at in a second. Mary, we know for a fact she was formerly, before she meets Jesus, was possessed by seven demons, right? Not the most reliable witness. Even if it's a woman in their day that would have been thrown out, it's, you would at least think, I don't know, a queen or something they would make up. But no, he chooses Mary. So why would John write this? Why would he write this? And uh, D.A. Carson says, again, this com the commentator on John says, the only reason John would actually write this is if it happened. The only reason John would write something like this is if he's actually recalling the facts. In fact, notice all of the random details that are strewn about these first 10 verses. Him outrunning Peter. He's not bragging. Why would you put that in there? Unless it happened. Why would you put how the cloth was folded unless it happened? In fact, him outrunning Peter, because people expect it to really mean something else than just recording history, there's all these fun, weird, dumb theories I came across throughout church history where it's 
well, John's church is going to grow faster than Peter's, and so that's what he's putting in here, like ridiculous stuff like that. John is writing this because it happened. All the random details are because he's actually recording history that happened. But the fact for us, he's not just recording random historical facts. The reality of the resurrection means everything for Christians. The fact that it happened isn't just, oh, okay, there's something that happened 2,000 years ago. That means everything for you and I today if you are a Christian. We just looked at this for seven weeks as we finished up 1 Corinthians a few months ago. Look back at 1 Corinthians 15. This is Paul talking about what would happen if Christ hadn't been raised. If it didn't happen, what does that mean for us Christians? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain, and we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, if it didn't happen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If it didn't happen, you and I are the most pitied people in the universe. But look at the next verse, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It did happen. He has been raised. Our faith is not futile. We are not most to be pitied. And in fact, his resurrection is the first fruits of your future resurrection, if you are in Christ. When you die one day, every funeral you go to, you can smile, knowing if that believer goes in the ground, they will get up one day because Christ has been raised as the first fruits, as the promise and the guarantee of your future resurrection. It did happen, and that means everything for you if you're a Christian. But as I said, this is largely setting up the story for what's going to come next. So let's look at that next section. So that's the resurrection. It happened. Now let's look at the person of the resurrection. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have lain him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've lain him, and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Man, this will be rough. Okay, so if you're new, I do this every sermon. Uh, so we've left Peter. Peter and John have gone to their homes. The story now pivots back to Mary. Who is Mary Magdalene? She may be, what we, what we might know about her, she may be the, the sinful woman of Luke 7, who when Jesus is having, a din having dinner with a Pharisee, comes in and breaks the alabaster flask over his feet 
and weeps over his feet and dries them with her tears. She, many actually think she is this sinful woman, although we don't have much in the text to go on. She may be Martha's sister, the famous story of Mary and Martha, where Martha is busy, and where's Mary? Sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. She may be Mary of Bethany. What we know for sure is she was a disciple of Jesus. There's the 12, and then there's also a larger group kind of always following him. There's one point in the Gospels where Jesus sends out the 12, and then he also sends out 72. Okay, so there's, there's more than just the 12 following him, and Mary would have been one of those. We know uh, she, Jesus casts out seven demons from her. There's this reference of Mary Magdalene, the one whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. So think about it. When she encounters Jesus, we don't have the story in the text. We just have the reference. Jesus has already healed her from her biggest trial. She loves Jesus. We know also uh, she was at the cross, standing at the foot of the cross, apparently close enough with Mary, Jesus' mother, and John, close enough to where he could talk to them. So think about it. She's watched him bleed. She watched the thieves mock him, the Pharisees mock him. She watched him breathe his last breaths as almost all others have deserted him, as Peter has denied him. She's at the foot of the cross watching him die. She is the picture of closeness with Jesus. In fact, there's, there's these false gospels, Gnostic gospels from the early church uh, where they say Jesus actually marries Mary Magdalene. If you've seen or read the Da Vinci Code, that's also a ridiculous lie. But you don't just pick a random person to make up the lie that Jesus got married. She's the picture of closeness with Jesus. She loves him. So review the story. She, she goes to the tomb, just sees that the stone is rolled away, and she runs. See the urgency there. And now, in verse 11, the story cuts back to her, and notice, she isn't believing. Peter and John go in, they look, they see, they believe, and they go home. Mary isn't believing. She's still weeping. She's still very, very much convinced he's been stolen. Now, Almost all, all of his disciples, all throughout the Gospels, have the wrong expectations of Jesus. They will say he's the Messiah. They'll say he's the Christ. In their mind, they think he's going to deliver us from all of our physical trials, namely Rome. He's going to, like King David, overthrow all the oppressive forces over us. We're going to have heaven on earth here. We're going to get back on top again. So when Jesus starts saying things like, I'm going to die, Rome is actually going to kill me, that's when they freak out the most. Right? They have radical wrong expectations of Jesus. Mary was no different, and so his death has shattered her. The only thing she has left is at least to grieve in peace. So she's going to his tomb to kind of finish the, the burial process. We know from Luke they have spices and things like that. And now she sees the tomb is empty, and even that, she thinks, has been taken from her. I can't even grieve in peace. They've stolen the body. And so now this anxiety is going to fill her heart. She's going to be overwhelmed. And all she's going to think about from here on out is her needs, getting that anxiety removed. I at least want to grieve in peace. I got to find him. I got to figure out where his dead body is, bring him back. And then at least I can grieve in peace. It's the only thing I have left. And what we're going to see is this anxious heart, this false conclusion that leads to an anxious heart is going to blind her to any sort of real comfort as she encounters what should comfort her time and time and time and time again. So let's look back at verse 11. 
And as she wept, she, uh, she stooped to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laying, one at the head and one at the feet. So she goes into the tomb, like Peter and John. So what should we expect? She's going to see the cloth, and she's going to see and believe. But not only does she get what they got, the cloth, she gets angels, right? If anything could remove blinders, it would be messengers from God, yet Mary is still in her unbelief. Look at verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. So there's her false conclusion. The angels are asking her why she's weeping, not because they need more information. This is a gentle rebuke. She should not be weeping. She should remember the words of her Savior whose body is missing. She should have seen Peter and John seeing and believing, yet she still doesn't believe. Doesn't believe with the cloth like Peter and John, and then now doesn't believe with angels. Which, by the way, side note, almost any time you see angels show up and interact with man in the scriptures, man either falls to the ground and worships them, and angels have to say, no, 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 no. Get up, get up, get up. Don't do that. You're going to get us both in trouble. Stand up. Uh, Or they're terrified. They're terrified. We see Daniel, this man who's the picture of closeness to God. Angels show up, and he's just pinned to the ground, or Isaiah 6, pinned to the ground as they're in the presence of different angels. Notice, Mary does not flinch. She's so blinded, immediately giving the false conclusion that she's come to. She doesn't see it as a sign that's meant to comfort her because her anxious heart is so blinded her to what's meant to be comforting. Verse 14, as if it could get any more comforting. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turns. So she's done with the angels, not comforted by the angels. She turns around and saw Jesus standing, the one she's crying about, the one she's looking for. She lays eyes on him, saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So she sees Jesus. She sees the one she's looking for. What should we expect? Relief. There you are. But she doesn't recognize him, so count it. She's seen the cloth. Again, she's seen Peter and John believe. She's there weeping as they leave and happily go to their homes, sees the angels, sees Jesus, yet she's still blind. She's still overwhelmed with this anxious heart. Jesus asks her, why are you weeping? Again, she should not be weeping. And Jesus asks her, whom are you seeking? He knows why she's weeping. Whom are you seeking? She still doesn't see who's right in front of her. And then look at 15. This is her response. Supposing him to be the gardener, Jesus said to, or she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. Again, she just wants to fix it. I just want to get back, find where, where his body's been taken, and I just want to bring him back. She's miss, missed every sign for relief. She's blind to the one that's right in front of her. The one she's looking for is right there talking to her, and she doesn't get it until verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The cloth doesn't do it. Peter and John believing don't do it. Angels don't do it. Seeing Jesus with her eyes doesn't do it. What is it? What is it that finally opens her eyes? It's a Savior that knows her. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. I call them by name, and they 
know me. That's what finally opens Mary's eyes. In an instant, all her pain, all her grief, all her anxiety flees, and it's replaced with joy. There is so much packed in this one word about who your Savior is. So let's look at a couple. I'm going to take a drink. Man, <clears throat> sorry. I knew I picked this passage and I was studying it, and I was like, this is gonna be rough. This is gonna be the roughest one yet. Okay, there's so much packed in about who Jesus is into this one word, Mary. First thing we see is that he is a personal savior. And I don't mean by that someone you carry around in your pocket, your personal little savior. He is personal. What is it that opens her eyes? A savior that knows her. If we saw the heart of our Savior that knows us, loves us, the infinite love he has for us, how far would that banish the constant theme in so many of our prayer lives, in our Bible study, that he is distant, far away, uninterested? Look at me. Nothing could be closer to the heart of what the New Testament is trying to communicate to Christians then Jesus loves you with a love that surpasses all knowledge. Go read Ephesians 3. Read 1 through 3, actually. Paul paints the picture of the gospel in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then chapter 3, he prays for them, and he prays that they would have in their inner being the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, depth, breadth, length, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. This love that there's no way in our human minds we can ever possibly fathom. Yet Paul prays, I want them to dive deep in the infinite ocean of his love and know it, though it surpasses all knowledge. That's the prayer of the apostle of the church for believers. I pray that for you, by the way, during the week. I get your pictures. I go into one of the kids' rooms. I get on my knees, and I pray that you'd be filled with the fullness of God, that Jesus would not be a figurehead of a club you're in but that you would know him and that you would see that he knows you. This is the core of our faith, knowing and being known by our Savior, this Savior. He came down as we're infinitely separated from a holy God so that you could know him. What bars the people in Matthew 7 who are displaying their works before him? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do many great works in your name? What bars those people from his presence? I never knew you. And here he says to Mary, I know you. He says her name. Oh, that we would hear him say our name that we would not see him for someone that he's not, but we would see him for who he is. Could there be a sweeter taste to your soul than this being your savior? He's not a CEO a thousand miles away, only dealing with you know top, top, top level problems, and maybe somehow by implication that might get down to benefiting you. He knows you. He knows you. This is who he is. Could there be a greater hope? Could there be anything that makes him more lovely? more beautiful than he knows you. This is what I mean. When I say Christianity is not a club, this is what I mean. Knowing and being known by this Jesus who says, Mary. She's laid eyes on him, doesn't know who he is. She's hearing his voice. There's all these dumb theories. Maybe her eyes were blurry because of tears. It's not what's happening here. 
He says her name, and she sees her Savior who knows her, the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name. They know his voice. Second thing we see, he is a tender Savior. Where does Jesus find Mary? In the midst of rampant unbelief, sinful unbelief. Peter and John believe. Mary doesn't. She's followed him for maybe three years. She's heard his teaching. She's heard him predict, predict, I will die and be raised three days later. She's seen Peter and John believe, doesn't follow their example. She sees the cloth. Angel sees Jesus himself, yet she doesn't believe. She's so focused on removing this anxiety from her heart. And what does Jesus not say? He doesn't show up and say, hey, remember that time I said this was going to happen and I gave you a trillion signs and what are you doing crying? Get up and be a good Christian for once. What does he say? Does he rebuke her in the midst of her unbelief? No, he says Mary. He's almost as if he's saying, it's me. It's the one who knows you. What a tender Savior who meets us in our weakness, in our sin, in our unbelief, and in our blindness. What a lie it is that once we reach his high standards, he might give us some attention. Look where he meets Mary in her weakness and in her blindness and in her sin. He came down to lift up the lowly. He came down to lift up the outcast. He knows your name. And in fact, that's the next thing we see. He is a lowly savior. If you were here a few weeks ago, when we started Matthew, we looked at that fun genealogy at the beginning, and one of the main things we saw was who Jesus came to save, which isn't the best and the brightest. He comes to save the outcast. I came not for those who are perfectly healthy. They need no doctor. The sick need a doctor. I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. We saw that in Matthew 1, and look, Jesus doesn't say, oh, Peter and John, believing, they get it. Let me find them to deliver the message that I'm ascending to the Father. No, he finds Mary crying, doubting Mary, this former demon-possessed woman, Mary, and chooses her to deliver the message that he is going to ascend to his Father and our Father. He doesn't come for the best and the brightest. He goes to the outcast lift up, to lift up the down trodden. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's who Jesus is. And then the last thing, there's an infinite number more, but the last thing we'll talk about is what a sweet salvation we have that this is our Savior. If there's ever anything that could shatter the ridiculously false idea that Christianity is following a bunch of moralistic rules to earn the favor of an abstract God and maybe get to heaven one day if we performed well enough. It's this one word, Mary. Salvation is not our performance. Rather, it's that the God of all joy and the God of all love has come for you and has brought you into his family. This is who you belong to. If you're a Christian, him, he is your joy. He is your satisfaction. John 17, three, this is eternal life. Whatever comes after that statement, it's probably a big deal. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul again says, I have the privilege of preaching to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches 
of Christ. So you're supposed to know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge, and I get to tell people to search the unsearchable riches of Christ. This Savior who says, Mary, who knows your name, his riches are unsearchable. His love surpasses all knowledge, yet we have the infinite joy of knowing him and being known by him. Does that characterize? When you say, I'm a Christian, does that, does him, does he characterize your life? When you pray, when you close your eyes to pray, do you hear the God who's holding the universe together say your name? He knows it. He knows it. What a sweet salvation that we have. This is who he is. Banish the thought of a distant, unconcerned Savior. Gaze at this personal, tender, lowly, lovely, beautiful Savior until your heart just overflows, until it pushes out all false ideas of him that are robbing your worship and robbing your joy. Gaze at this Savior. This is the person of the resurrection, but there's more. So that's the person of the resurrection. There's one more thing. We're at the seats. We're ready to see the race. Next comes the reward of the resurrection. The reward of the resurrection. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to her, Don't cling, uh, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So these last two verses, at first glance, just kind of looks like Jesus is saying, get off and go tell the disciples this message, right? Someone in our staff meeting, uh, I won't tell you who it is, it was Tim, joked, uh, you know, he's this sweet moment, Mary, and then the next thing we see is, get off me, right? Doesn't seem to match. Uh, So it, it just looks like this random thing, unless, unless you know the story of the Gospel of John, unless you know the message that John, in writing this whole gospel, is trying to communicate. And if you know that, we see in these two verses, is the announcement of this unimaginable, new, glorious reality. So, quick overview of John. What, the main theme of this whole gospel is that the Father sent the Son. How does it start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We see over and over again, Jesus repeat things like, I do only what I see the Father doing. We see in his prayer that the the disciples, the church would be unified, says things like, I pray they'd be unified, that they love one another, so that the world may believe that you, God, sent me. Over and over and over again, he says, the Father sent the Son, the Father sent the Son, the Father sent the Son. That is the theme of John. And here, look back at verse 17, look at Jesus' words. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is the first time in the entire Gospel of John where the Father is called your Father. All throughout the entire book, he's Jesus, the eternal Son, the eternal Word made flesh, His Father. Here's the first time we see He is not just Jesus' Father. He's your Father. In other words, John is showing, now when is this scene? Right on the other side of the empty tomb. John is showing 
what Jesus just accomplished, what Jesus just bought for us. He's showing us the reward of the resurrection. God is his father and your father, and your father. Now, there might be a temptation for that to mean nothing or for you to say, you know, what's the big deal? We always pray, Father, you know, the Lord's Prayer, Father, uh, my, my grandparents, uh, my, my grandmother grew up in a, in a house next to a train station. I've told this story before. And when they got married, the first time they stayed at their in-laws by the train station, they were sleeping at night and a, the train came through. And my grandfather literally thought a tornado was coming through the roof, like coming through the house. And so he jumped on top of my grandmother to protect her. She had not woken up and she you know, pushed him off and said, it's the train, go to sleep. She had heard it, though it was so loud. She had heard it so many times she didn't even hear it anymore. And so there's a danger for us when we repeat a bunch of Christian things that we can grow numb to it. When we say father so much, we could lose its meaning. So I want, to, I want us to grasp this. From Genesis 3, from sin entering into the world, we are cut off from God. No longer do we walk with God in the cool of the day. And so any time throughout the whole scriptures you see God's presence encounter man, you see terror fill man. Think of Mount Sinai. God comes down in a cloud on Mount Sinai. What does Israel say? Moses, have fun with that. Please tell him no longer to talk to us or else we'll die. He is infinitely glorious, infinitely holy. We are infinitely sinful. We cannot go into his presence and live. Over and over we see that. Even sacrifice is necessary so that man could be in his presence, yet it's still a terrifying thing because of his holiness, because of his infinite goodness and our infinite wickedness. Yet here, Jesus is announcing after the cross and after the resurrection, a new reality. God is your Father. The veil has been torn. You can boldly approach the throne of grace, not just because God's not mad at you anymore, but because he is your Father. John, holding up all throughout his gospel, Jesus alone knows the beauty of eternally being with the Father, and now he is your Father as well. Or to say it another way, to say it clearer what you've been waiting for, the reward of the resurrection is adoption. The reward of the resurrection is our adoption. The eternal Son, who has always been with the Father, who has always been basking in the beams of his infinite glory and love, has come down, lived the life you and I were meant to live, the perfect life that we failed to live, died the death you and I deserved, took your hell, took my hell for us on Friday, and now has been raised victorious. Death has no more sting, and now there is no more debt to be paid. He's paid it all. Now you are adopted. The eternal son has brought you in to be adopted by grace as a son, as a daughter, daughter of God. My father and your father, the eternal son, came down to make you a son, to make you a daughter of God. We, as, as, as good Protestants, focus on justification by faith. Boo Catholics who don't believe that, right? Justification by faith. That's great. That's a, focus on that. Here's where, we, here's where we typically stop, or here's our typical mistake. That's where we stop. We're forgiven. Thank you. That's where we stop. Justification by faith, no longer any sin. But when we stop there, notice, all you can do is be thankful to a merciful judge 
you don't know him. He's just forgiven you. He's just said, you don't have a debt anymore. And you can say, thanks. And if you stop there, that's all you can say. But if you keep going, let me, let me ask it this way. Why were you forgiven? Why were you justified? What is it for? Is it just so that you can have a blank slate? Is it just so that you can not have hell? Is it just to remove the negative? Why were you forgiven? You were forgiven to run into the arms of a merciful judge and to go home with him as his adopted child. You were forgiven. You were justified so that you could be adopted. J.I. Packer, very famous author, theologian, professor, says this, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. To be right with God, the judge, is great, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. The reward of the resurrection, the reward Jesus is announcing here to Mary, the salvation Jesus came to give is our adoption, and that is infinitely better than what anybody was expecting. He is the God who does far more than we could ever ask or think. He doesn't just beat the bad guy and leave. He brings you home, brings you into the arms of the God of all joy. In fact, what he's saying here is better than what anybody expected. What he's saying here when he tells Mary, don't cling to me, he's essentially saying, don't cling to this, your, your low expectations, just me being with you physically. He had to tell the disciples the same thing in the upper room. It's better that I go. I'm going to go sit at the right hand of the Father. He's going to be your Father, and we're going to pour out the Spirit on you. God is not just going to be with you physically. He's going to be dwelling inside you as the seal of your salvation so that you can cry, Abba, Father, it's better that I go. What I have in store is infinitely better than what you think. Mary just thinks, I found him. Let me keep him. She's holding on. He says, don't cling to this. There's something infinitely better in store for you. It's better that I go. The reward of the, resurrec of the resurrection, adoption, is so much better. He's his father and our father. This, by the way, is meant to be the core of who you are. This is meant to be your identity. It's Easter. You expect us to tell you all the best stuff, right? Uh, this, if you're a Christian, is meant to be the absolute core. It's the highest privilege of the gospel, and it's the core of who you are until you see this. Until you see God as your father who sent his son to bring you into his family. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world, he sent his son. Until you see God as your father who accepts you as blameless because you're in Christ, you will never be able to actually rest. You'll be stressed like Mary. You'll never be able to actually rest in your joy. will always be dependent on your performance. And so it will be quickly fleeting uh, I've been watching a lot of Disney lately, but like 90s Disney, back when they were Christian, you know. Because uh, I, have, I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old, and so we, they love Toy Story. Buzz is their favorite. My two-year-old literally, like, quotes scenes now. Uh, and so I'm watching, uh, you know, Toy Story 200 to 300 times a week. And so naturally, being a pastor, I'm just seeing all these analogies. And so I thought about a Buzz Lightyear analogy for us. What is Buzz's identity when he shows up on Andy's bed? He's a space ranger, right? He's very unaware that that's built on a false reality, that he's actually a toy. 
and he's a space ranger, and he's cruising along, and he's cool for a little bit until he sees reality. And what happens? He crumbles. He crumbles. Tries to fly, crashes, turns into Mrs. Nesbitt, right? <laughs> what is it that actually allows, allows Buzz to rest? What allows Buzz to be happy? What allows Buzz to experience joy? This is in the credits. You know, the, this is the hidden message of the movie. It's when he realizes his purpose is to be loved by his owner, Andy. And you, if you draw your identity from anything or anyone else, that's built on a facade. You might cruise for a while. You will crumble when reality hits you, not until you see that the infinite God of the universe, the only one whose opinion matters of you, sees you as blameless, loves you with an infinite love, the God who looks down on his son in the Jordan River and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, until you see that he also looks down on you and says, this is my son, this is my adopted daughter with whom I am well pleased because you're in Christ. You will never be able to rest. But when you do, you will. When does Buzz finally put his helmet down? Last scene, right? He's a happy toy now. He's resting in Andy's arms. Right? He realizes who he was made to be. That's who you were made to be. That's meant to be the core of your identity. You are a child of the living God. Augustine says this. Jeff, Jeff quoted part of this this morning in his theological equipping. This is Augustine praying to God. What does ambition seek except honor and glory? But only you, Lord, have a glory forever that can never be lost. What does the power and might, what does power and might desire except to be feared? But none has power that can never be seized or stolen but you. What do the lonely and the anxious long for except a love they cannot lose? But what can, uh, but what, but who can give a love that does not fade or die but you? What does weariness seek except rest? But what sure rest is there apart from you? Thus the soul commits adultery when it turns from you to seek these things that it cannot find except in you. Oh, Lord, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or to quote John in 1 John 3, see with what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's the reward of the resurrection. My Father and your Father. Let that be the thought that passes through your mind when the alarm goes off in the morning. Let that be the last thought that passes through your mind when you lay your head on the pillow. Every work, every bit of work you've done today pleases your father because he has already accepted you. He loves you no matter what you do, no matter your failures, no matter all of your weaknesses. In fact, now your weaknesses only uphold his son. This is my beloved son or daughter, my adopted son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. You don't just know that Savior, Jesus, as this tender personal, intimate Savior. You know God as your Father. So you see what we're doing here on Easter. We don't just celebrate the fact that Jesus isn't still dead. I mean, we are celebrating that. That's a big deal. 
but we see the reward. We, we like the seats, but what's on the other side of the seats? The reward of the resurrection. So there's one more question as we close. How? How does his resurrection actually bring us to the Father? Again, think back. What is the worst punishment for sin in Genesis 3? Is it pain and childbearing? We've got a lot of kids here. A lot of moms would say, yeah. Uh, is it that? I would say no. I've never done it, but no. Is it thorns and thistles coming out of the ground? No. Is it death? No. It's that you were kicked out of the garden. We were kicked out of his presence. And notice the last two verses in Genesis 3, we're not just kicked out and sent away. God puts an angel guarding the entrance with a sword that's flaming, passing every possible way. There's no way back into his presence without going through that sword. We are cut off from his presence. So how do we get back to the Father? How do we have this fellowship with the Father? And the Scottish pastor I've been quoting a lot says, Robert Murray McShane says, someone had to go underneath the sword. The sword is passing every which way. Can we find our way around it? No, someone has to go underneath the sword. Who is it that says, I am the way? No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ goes under the sword so that you might, through him, make it back into God's presence. Notice where he and Mary are having this conversation. Who does she mistake him as? A gardener. They're in a garden. When Jesus announced, your father, I've just made a way back because the sword has come down on him on Friday and now we celebrate his father and your father. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if you are here because it's just Easter and that's what we do in the Bible Belt for now and you don't really care much about this but you like getting dressed up twice a year, when your life does crumble, when you jump off the banister and fall down and your arm falls off and you turn into Mrs. Nesbitt, that maybe has already happened, when you see that all that your identity is built on is a facade, it's based on your performance and you'll never actually be able to rest, no, infinite joy and rest wait for you in the arms of your father when you trust in his son. And if you are a Christian, let me just implore you, don't let your eyes settle on anything else until they have settled on and been saturated by a Savior who is tender and loves you and knows your name and has brought you to his Father and your Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God, and so we are. Let's pray. Father, we say that because that's the new reality that's been announced by your son. You're not just Jesus' father, you're our father, if we've been brought into your son. And so I pray that your spirit would do that, would set our eyes. You say in your word, you've given us your spirit that we might cry, Abba, Father. I pray that our, your, your spirit would, would not let our eyes look anywhere else, but rather be fixed, almost as a magnet tries to pull away, but then gets yanked back. I pray that our eyes would be magnetized to this reality and that it would be our identity. You are our Father, well-pleased because we are in your Son. 
with whom there is no error or sin or imperfection or weakness. I pray that that would saturate our lives, that it would banish any idol that would dare rob you of the glory you are worthy of, and it would banish any idol that would dare rob us of the joy of resting and being your children and knowing your son. I pray that your spirit would do that by his infinite power, and I pray that in your son's name. Amen.